Hey all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be talking active transport, gentrification, and infrastructure. Now, for anyone who knows me IRL, I'm a big cyclist, and I get really riled up about infrastructure stuff because it's really dangerous out there. But there's also a bit of a dark side to building our infrastructure in this city as we see underserved neighborhoods being turned over to gentrifiers when this new infrastructure is put in. We see who's being served by the city and who's not. Exploring this issue with me today is Professor Adonia Lugo, cultural anthropologist from Antioch University, and also the author of the book Bicycle Race. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming by. So let's start off with the book. Uh, Tell me about why you decided to write this and uh, what you kind of learned in exploring this subject. Sure. So I got started on this particular research and activism thread um, in 2007 when uh, I'm someone who grew up in South Orange County, which is a place that doesn't really encourage uh, bicycling for transportation. Uh, so when I was growing up, uh, I you know I did a lot of walking in my community. We were right by the Colonial Town Center, so it was it was pretty like what people would call walkable. It was right by one of the concretized creeks that is all over Southern California. So we could even you know walk all the way to the ocean, which we didn't do too often, but that was pretty cool. Um, but biking wasn't really something that I considered as a possibility. Um, I was lucky to inherit my mom's old car when I got my driver's license uh, when I was 17. So after that, I didn't really look back and uh, was glad to have my own uh, form of transportation. But then I went to college up in Portland, Oregon, which is a city with a pretty different transportation culture, um, which I didn't I didn't really I didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, when you're like 16, 17, choosing college, what the heck do you know about like the environment that you're moving into? So uh, one of the things I learned through living in Portland and and being in school there was that this was a city where lots of people rode bikes for transportation. Um, I didn't try doing that till I'd finished college. My boyfriend at the time was like, we really need to get you a bike. You know, it's just like not cool that we can't, you know, ride around town together, ride to bars, things like that. So I was like, uh, okay. So we went and got me a $10 bike um, at the Goodwill Bins. And I started riding that and thought it was really really scary to be like out there on the road, um, you know, huffing and puffing and feeling terrified of these cars. And it just at first was like this really visceral and really nasty experience. And then somehow um, I decided I liked it and became a regular bike commuter. Um, But I still I didn't really know anything about, you know, well, why were people in Portland biking? It was just a thing that people did there. And so when I came back to Southern California in 2007 to start my anthropology PhD, I went through some pretty serious culture shock where I was like, wait, what? I'm like, I'm like doing the right thing. I'm, I'm riding my bike. You know, I'm, I'm not driving as much. I use public transit. Why are the drivers here honking at me, being super aggressive in a way that they weren't in Portland? Like it felt so different to ride a bike here than it did up there. And um, I ditched the other project I was going to work on for my PhD and ended up focusing on transportation culture. So what is it that makes a place feel like this is the right kind of transportation and this is the wrong kind of transportation? And how does that overlap with these historical inequalities? around race and class. And here in Southern California, this is a great place to look at that intersection because very much so. Yeah, like our our history of urban and suburban sprawl is really tied to our region's legacy of segregation. One of the stories I really like telling, I learned this when I worked on a sort of faux documentary back in the early 2000s, uh, interviewing a bunch of old uh, hip-hop heads from South LA, uh, and Medea spoke about how when she was growing up, there was all these trees in her in her neighborhood, uh, and then LAPD was like, well, we can't see your house through the trees from the helicopter, and cut down all of the trees, and we see these intersections very harshly drawn across our city. I was hoping you could talk about that and where we see the lines of demarcation. Right, yeah. So, okay, so what happened here in Southern California, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, <laughs> uh, which is when there were the first really big booms in population happening as people were coming here to, you know, live their dreams, to be 
gentlemen farmers and grow citrus, coming here to escape uh, tuberculosis, coming here to work in the oil industry. Um, there were huge amounts of people coming here in the in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that was before uh, Mr. Henry Ford had created the technology to mass produce uh, the private automobile. So most of those people who were moving here were dependent on this network of streetcars that ran not only all over the city of L.A., but L.A. County and Southern California as a whole. And and these were mainly privately owned streetcars, from what I understand. They were, yeah. So these were private systems. Um, They covered a huge amount of distance. Like my great-grandma, who was born in San Bernardino in 1895, used to talk about taking the trolley from San Bernardino all the way to Balboa in Newport Beach. Yeah, over on the coast. So this, this, there was like some serious uh, connectivity happening. But these systems were completely privately owned. And in fact, they weren't put in because there was some like utopian, you know, mass transit, let's bring a public good to the to the masses kind of thinkers. They were put in as an enticement to get people out to buy homes mm-hmm. in these areas that wouldn't have been worth anything if they weren't accessible to the city center. So um, the classic example is Henry Huntington, who was a developer who also started buying up trolley lines because if he could get people out to these uh, home lots, then they were going to pay more for for the homes than if you know they somehow had to have their own transportation, which at that time would have been um, a bicycle or a horse-drawn wagon. So... The trolleys really got us going with this urban sprawl phenomenon. And again, because this region grew up really quickly over a long time, you know, undeveloped agrarian landscape, people liked that. People liked the whole idea of, oh, I live in I live in the countryside. And so the streetcars made it possible for lots and lots of people to come here and move in and still feel like they were kind of living in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And so we still kind of have that ethos in Southern California. That's why you have people, oh my God, I went to Temecula a couple weekends ago and I was just like, how many people are commuting from Temecula to Los Angeles? I think there's a bunch of them. Um, That's why people are willing to do it because out there you can have your house with your view of the mountains and go, ah, I'm living the same California dream that was started in the, you know, 1890s. So we love that sort of, you know, uh, I kind of live in the countryside approach to the landscape here in Southern California. But at the same time that that was being developed over the course of the 20th century, there were also uh, a lot of racist ideas that were embedded in, you know, development, where people wanted to live, that sort of thing. And so, of course, the areas that were marked as being for whites ended up having some nicer infrastructure put in and, you know, have been better maintained um, to this day. And the areas that were marked as being for blacks or for Mexicans or the Chinese or you know, whatever undesirables were managing to stick around here or, or coming and invading um, were not as nicely maintained. And, you know, with the phenomenon of white flight and, and all that stuff, um, you know, we really entrenched at a regional scale this problem of uh, considering certain zones of the urban landscape as like dead, criminal, dangerous, you know, not places that you should go at all. And, you um, Part of maintaining those divisions was making sure that there wasn't good public transit access between the bad parts of town and the better parts of town. So as families who lived in central L.A. through the second half of the 20th century know, it was really hard getting around on RTD, getting around on the bus. And people managed to do it anyway because they had to. The thing is, when you don't have a lot of options, you tend to be pretty creative. Um, So what we're dealing with today in this moment of, you know, lots of people who grew up in the suburbs like me saying, dang, I don't really want to live in that, you know, exurban colonial town where I grew up. Plus, I can't afford to live there. Um, I'd rather be in a city. And realizing, oh, as much as L.A. has been called a non-city for so long, turns out there is an urban core here. And there has been all this time. It's just that it was full of Mexicans and black people and immigrants and those people who you're supposed to stay away from. So we're in this moment where... 
you know, you could see it as a good thing that more people of younger generations want to live in cities. Like, that's awesome. Uh, There's good ecological reasons, integration reasons, awesome stuff. But the not so awesome stuff that it's really highlighting and exacerbating is the historic reality of wealth inequality, where some people are able to come in and pay more for housing. They have access to higher wage jobs. They can pay more for transportation. Um, So you have that basic wealth gap. And then you have the fact that the built environments we live in still carry those cultural values from frickin' uh, 60 years ago. Yeah, this is going to date me a bit, but you know, one of my favorite movies uh, growing up is now the classic Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which explores getting rid of the trolley lines, and it, it you know fudges the the story a little bit, but it points to something where like the 110 was originally there was a bike highway that followed that out to Pasadena, and that's been eliminated in favor of a freeway. The trolleys were eliminated in favor of freeways and white car culture, but now we're seeing that reversal as like people are moving in and want places to live, and that infrastructure to for active transit is coming back in, but upending these neighborhoods that were traditionally working class and browner and blacker neighborhoods than what we're seeing now. I was hoping you could talk about the impacts we're seeing on people who are living in those communities today. Right, yeah. So I think that the impacts that people are experiencing today are different because so much of how a person relates to transportation options, transportation innovation has to do with, you know, the the social status that comes with traveling through different modes of transportation and how important that social status is for them to present to the world because of the kinds of uh, marginalization and oppression that they've experienced. So I think, you know, it would have been cool if during the second half of the 20th century, there had been a super awesome, you know, multiracial grassroots movement in L.A. um, pushing back against the dominance of cars and the way that highways were brought in and destroyed neighborhoods, the the big planning decisions like what happened with Chavez Ravine and Dodger Stadium. You know, if there was this big organized effort of people saying no. Um, But There was some pretty cool organized stuff that happened in the 90s with the Bus Riders Union around transit. But prior to that, and even with that, I think it's really hard to talk about and challenge the fact that it's not like just because you get screwed over by car culture, you don't also want to be part of it. Um, What I witnessed where I grew up, which was a, a Mexican immigrant community, was that the only people who weren't driving cars were the people who couldn't afford to drive cars. And it doesn't matter if the whole, like, culture of driving cars and our addiction to driving and highway infrastructure and all the money we spend on roads falls on, you know, the burdens fall on communities of color and low-income communities, which they certainly do. People in those communities still want the status of having a car and getting around with that kind of, you know, perceived independence and freedom. And that is something that I think has been really hard to put at the center of uh, organizing around sustainable transportation Mm -hmm. because, you know, all right, we got some people who are like, yeah, cars are bad. We're going to get around in other modes. And, you know, the auto industry really messed up everything. And we're going to get past that now with our bicycles and, you know, uh, access to transit. And that's I'm 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 in that group. I'm one of those people. But at the same time, I remember how embarrassing it was to stand at a bus stop when I was a teenager and, you know, wait for a bus that came once an hour. And I'm someone who, you know, after years of being car free, now lives in L.A. and drove to this meeting this morning because I was like, hmm, the time that it would take me to come on the bus, I could use towards some, you know, better stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and hop in my car like there's we're not at a place where we have. and by we, I mean people who work on sustainable transportation and active transportation and, you know, what do we do about the transportation of our cities? We don't have a shared understanding of what the mobility problems are and thus what the mobility solutions should be. And so um, what we're seeing now is uh, basically those tensions playing out when it comes to, you know, OK, people started wanting to put in bike line, bike lanes and and better, uh, you know, rail infrastructure and stuff like that a number of years ago. And, you know, pretty quickly, people in lower income neighborhoods figured out like, oh, if this stuff goes in, 
it's supposed to benefit me, but actually it's probably going to lead to an increase in property values. And I'm not even going to be able to live here anymore to like enjoy it once it gets put in place. So people have been like pointing that out, making that observation for some years now. And yet we're still not at a place where there has been like a real reopening of strategy and going, okay, yeah, well, if investing only in built environments is something that leads to the displacement of the under-resourced communities, you know, who have been shut out of wealth building through home ownership and stuff like that. Maybe there are other ways we could be promoting transportation. Maybe there are other ways that we could look at the problem of mobility. Um, so I think that there is so much need for like real dialogue around how come somebody in Lamert Park might not be excited about the metro coming in? How come somebody in Lamert Park might be excited that the metro is coming in? How come somebody in, uh, you know, like my neighborhood in Fairfax might be glad that there's a, a bus on Melrose and somebody else in my neighborhood might be like, oh, I hate that bus on Melrose. It brings in all those people who line up outside the skateboard shops. So we are not at a place where where we have like shared cultural values around mobility and that gets reflected in how we do public investment in mobility systems. That's something I'm really familiar with because I, as a cyclist, like I haven't owned a car for a decade, but that's a hard choice I've made. And I know there are compromises I make in my life to make that happen. Other people, when they're like, I'd love to bike more, but I don't want to die. And I'm like, totally get you there. Uh, what I did want to ask about was the findings in your book. Like, the, Did your research lead you any interesting places or kind of like confirm or disconfirm notions you had before going into that? Like, Were there any surprises when you were kind of trying to figure out how we ended up in this anthropological moment? Yeah, I would say the surprises, uh, well, one surprise was how difficult it can be to, to get people who are really caught up in an activist space to have more self-awareness about, you know, where are their strategies coming from? Who are they really building thought partnership with? Um, so in 2013, I moved to Washington, D.C. to work for a national bike organization called the League of American Bicyclists, leading an equity initiative. And at that time, um, bike equity was this new phrase that people were starting to use and had a kind of vague meaning. Um, for me and the people that uh, I was collaborating with, we wanted it to refer to, you know, really changing up the bike movement and the advocacy that results from it so that we were drawing on a more multiracial, uh, multigendered, you know, multigenerational experience of bicycling in different times and places to inform what kind of stuff we were asking um, elected officials to support, to to see how we should be spending public dollars to promote bicycling. Like we had a lot of agreement about bicycling being good for your health. You know, it's like good, good to exercise, yeah. good as a sustainability solution um, and good for community building. But what we didn't have in common with people who saw bike equity in like a much shallower way was that there are people for whom... Um, you know, and I've seen this through bicycling. I think it's probably not that different in some other movement spaces as well. There are people who are really well served by our current really effed up and inequitable political and economic systems. And but they have a thing that they like and they think that thing that they like is under attack. And so what they do as advocates is they go to that messed up system that they're able to, you know, manipulate or utilize to a greater or lesser extent. And they say, hey, system, you're supposed to like this thing that I'm into. How come you're not supporting it? Mm -hmm. And so bicycling is, um, you know, an example of that. There are like ways in which riding a bicycle uh, makes you feel really vulnerable, makes you uh, understand that, oh, you know, power dynamics play out in real time sometimes. And like this person is saying, I'm more powerful than you. And that can be a pretty shitty experience. Um, but unfortunately, the way that bike advocacy took shape in the 2000s really left out a bigger critique of, you know, what's going on? How come uh, different ways of traveling are not valued the same way and instead took this approach of if we could just get the dominant culture and system to accept bicycling, 
we're golden. So we're not we're not going to go in and say that the field of urban planning is inherently racist or has colonial origins, which it does. We're going to go in and say, hey, urban planners, all you got to do is incorporate these design standards in your, you know, very technical processes that are very uh, opaque to the public and have very little interest in democratic participation. If you just do things the way that we think you should do them, because we have the the professional training to come and speak your language, everything's good. Everybody's going to be biking. If you just build these cycle tracks that we went to Northern Europe and borrowed and brought back here to our really diverse cities in the U.S., problem solved like everybody's gonna be biking and healthy it's gonna be awesome and um as i got more and more involved in bicycle advocacy uh through my dissertation process all the way up to going and working in dc uh it was really hard to accept that you know for me being a bike activist had to do with a larger um political critique of power and, you know, not liking the way that, you know, in this incredibly abundant country and region, we still divide things in a way that, you know, creates really gross outer edges of of haves and have nots. Um, somehow, you know, for me, and I'm not alone in this, the bicycle is a, is like a, a consciousness raising tool that brings you into direct contact with, you know, the reality of, hey, actually, stuff is kind of flexible. The streets are kind of flexible. Um, you know, what we really need to repair is our relationships with each other and how our communities are taken care of. Um, in terms of streets, does it really matter, like, how nice looking your street is? Doesn't that actually just like easily play into this like urban development framework that raises property values? Like for me, bicycling was about challenging the whole system. And what I learned is for a lot of people who get into bicycling or even what they call bike equity, they have a really surface approach. It's really like capitalism's fine. The current system's fine. Just get those cycle tracks into the design standards and we're going to be good. Um, so it was it was surprising to to see how, you know, people can come together around bicycling, but actually have really different goals in mind. And um, when you start to bring that up and question those goals and say like, hey, you know, I'm really into bikes too, but the thing is I want more people to be able to access, not fewer, you know, like this kind of urban development stuff is really um, uh, counting on scarcity, you know, neighborhoods cost more when there are fewer nice neighborhoods and things like that. Um, you know, that that's maybe that's maybe that's not what we want to do to promote bicycling is like have the public associate bicycling with rich people. Um, and what I learned was, no, that was like actually super intentional. It was the bike advocacy world that started putting out reports in the in the uh, late 2000s and after saying things like bikes mean business, saying like, hey, Mr. Mayor, if you put in these bike lanes, you're going to attract the creative class like th- that is not. Not, you know, as obvious as it is, it didn't take the public and, you know, marginalized community members noticing that connection. It was actually the bike world made that connection and, you know, has been doing things since I don't even know how far back this practice goes, like taking elected officials on study tours to Copenhagen and being like, isn't it nice here? You know, you should put in these kind of bike lanes. And it's like, I don't know. I've been to a lot of places in the U.S. I haven't been everywhere. I have never been anywhere in this country that remotely matches Copenhagen in terms of like history, layout, uh, racial composition. I don't know why so many people think that that's an appropriate place from which to draw urban design concepts and apply in a city like Los Angeles. So, yes, surprised to learn that, um, you know, People don't see bicycling the same way. And if you if you in the name of like expanding bicycling, tell them like, hey, I think this strategy might be better than that strategy. They'll turn on you and be like, who are you? You're not qualified to speak for bicycling like you're that's not relevant to bicycling, all that stuff you're talking about. So that was that was unfortunate. Yeah. Where's your white paper on that sort of question stuff? (laughs) I I was going to say, I think it's interesting that you point out the link between like Copenhagen and the Scandinavian countries, which are very renowned for like having a very uh, open biking culture. Of course, their cities are designed for it in very strict, regimented ways. These are bike lanes. That's where car- 
And Carlane goes, but we see cycling as the main mode of transportation across Asia, the subcontinent, Africa. Why aren't American urban planners looking there? I mean, I don't think the answer is as simple as racism. There's a lot of stuff. But why do you think that they'll look at Copenhagen and be like, oh, that's successful, but then look at a city in Taiwan that's got, you know, six different modes of transport on one street and not even think about that mode of transit? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it actually is as simple as racism. It's just that (laughs) we're so accustomed to having these Eurocentric um, standards for what makes a quality place that you know, we're, we're not to the point yet of really being able to to identify that problem and move past it. But yeah, within urban planning and design, there is so much fetishism of European cities. And, um, you know, I think that in part, maybe it has to do with, you know, here in the U.S., uh, like earlier in the 20th century and in the 19th century, if you were a descendant of European immigrants, um, you were looked down on. You know, there's this whole well-documented process of how, like, um, the Irish and Italians, like, became white. You know, they weren't considered white at first. Um And so a lot of people who are still alive today went through feeling ashamed of, you know, having culture or being ethnic. And so there's lots and lots of uh, white people today who, you know, don't have the cultural ties with their European heritage that maybe their parents or grandparents did. There was like a really concerted effort to stamp that out in, you know, a a similar way to the effort to stamp out uh, Native American cultures and, you know, Mexican culture. And, you know, everybody who came to this country experienced the assimilation pressure. But um, what I think is interesting and, and I would love to do some research on is how did we go from that to then now being like really into European design. And I bet there are people who've studied that. It's just not something that I've looked at. But yeah, it seems like maybe that's part of the, you know, as uh, people grew up in the U.S. and saw the problems with our, you know, over consumerism, um, car culture, uh, you know, just just producing so much waste and using so many resources just to live. Uh, And they looked for, you know, models to do something different, maybe European models just made more sense because the people looked the same as, as you know, where they were coming from because, you know, they probably grew up in a racially segregated environment. So maybe it was like going on trips to Europe and being like, whoa, you know, these people look like the people in my town, but they're traveling really differently or, or the city's laid out differently. I think that when white people go to those other countries where the people don't look like them, there is more going on besides just like seeing, you know, familiar faces, but in a different environment. And so I think that's one reason why it's really important to get more people of color working in urban planning and design so that we can bring more kinds of lived experiences into, you know, the lens through which we we look for solutions around the world. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things I've, I've found with the whole obsession with Copenhagen and, and bike infrastructure is like, I wonder when do people consider like the importance of socialism to how people interact in European cities or how European cities look and feel? And I feel like that gets left out. It's almost like, oh, if you just design the streets a certain way, everybody's going to behave, you know, like we see them behaving in Denmark. And I don't know that that's true, because if you want to talk about like wages, um, you know, yeah, economic security, food security, uh, gender divisions of labor, uh, how welcoming they are to immigrants. Like there's so many other factors that have to do with why people are nice to each other or not nice to each other when they're traveling. And um I do I do wonder why, um, you know, there's this tendency to to want it to be like a, a built environment element. It's like, oh, it's the separation between bikes and cars. That's why people are nicer to each other. And it's like, well, could it be maybe that they don't face the same kind of like horrible inequality that we do? I don't know. Yeah, I, I want to follow up on this, uh, bringing it directly home to, to L.A. policy. We have uh, Vision Zero. Uh, 
which is this bold plan to make there be no more pedestrian or cyclist deaths on the streets of Los Angeles because L.A. is basically the deadliest city for cyclists and pedestrians in the country at the moment. Uh, it's continually underfunded, uh, and it has this, like, if we build it, it will fix itself sort of mentality. But how do you think L.A. is doing in trying to achieve those goals, and do you think they're even embarking down the right path? I think that... Uh... <sighs> I mean, the Vision Zero model obviously has, like, excellent, I mean, who can argue with a goal like that? That's, like, so, you know, yes, we do need to undo this public consensus that some fatalities are just the cost of doing business. But I don't think that the Vision Zero model is really designed to change those attitudes. It it does have, a, again, this really strong focus on the built environment and, um, you know, the the... The theorist David Harvey talks about that sort of uh, phenomenon as environmental determinism, where, you know, there's this like desire among certain kinds of professionals to see how we interact and behave as really tied to, you know, what is what is the environment like? And I think the picture is a lot more complicated than that. Um, And so. Within Vision Zero, um, you know they have. I, I don't. I'm. I'm not a Vision Zero practitioner, so I don't know like the ins and outs. But I think they have something like five pillars of you know how they are going to um, achieve their goal, and some of those directly have to do with uh, street engineering and data and stuff like that. Um, and one of them has to do with increasing police enforcement of uh, traffic laws. So that's the area where me and a lot of other people I know have had. Um, some some real concerns in terms of again being like well this is a model that was developed in Europe and you know maybe people trust the cops more in Europe I don't know like I have not lived in a European city I've just been a tourist um, but I I and this is something I talk about in my book I had this like come to Jesus moment at the end of 2014 where you know Black Lives Matter was. Uh, like all over mainstream media, it was this like amazing, amazing uh, moment where the whole country was paying attention to the problem of uh, violence in black communities with um, policing. And at the same time, I was being sent by my job to, you know, a conference to learn about this Vision Zero model where they're saying we need more police to be, you know, writing people tickets. And it was like, what is this divide? Because I was not alone. Like I, I, I had lots of people to talk to. I started an email list in 2013 called the Bike Equity Network, where um, there's like a ton of people who you know talk about race and and class and contradictions and how we promote bicycling. And so I knew there were other people who got how weird that moment was. Um, but why didn't everybody get it? Why were there people in the bike world or the active transportation world or the urbanism world or whatever you want to call it, who didn't see how this was such an opportunity to build solidarity and say, dang, you said that there are problems with policing and we hear you and we believe you and we are not going to include this element in this program that we're now promoting all over the country and having many opportunities to talk to elected officials and city staff about. We are going to remove it and we're going to be really bold and transparent about that and say this is why we're doing it. We're just not going to touch it. You know, I think there are other ways of improving safety that are more inclusive. And they have never done that. And every time that, you know, the Vision Zero Network has reached out to me or other people who've brought up this contradiction, it's with this like tone of, you know, like they don't know what to do or or they want to address the problem. And it's like, that's all you have to do. That right there. And if that I don't, I don't know what other evidence needs to be brought forward. Um, that's where it just comes down to there being a a lack of a truly integrated multiracial culture at the heart of how we are envisioning street safety and the future of transportation in our cities right now. You know, Vision Zero is just one example of these different spaces and and trends and technologies that are cropping up and kind of getting imposed on communities instead of them being offered in a more equitable way as a potential solution, but not the solution. And I I think this points to uh 
very interesting kind of baton and carrot dichotomy that we have going on here with the police being kind of the punitive, like you will drive safely, you will obey the speed limit. But you were involved with probably one of my favorite events in all of L.A., uh, Ciclavia. Uh, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and how that's sort of the opposite of this, like, we're enforcing bicycle culture on you and more like opening it up to the communities. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. So um, when I was first developing my dissertation project in 2008, I got to go to Bogota. Colombia and see the ciclovia that they have been putting on there since the 1970s and um, it can, was can you tell our audience who's not familiar what what that looks like sure yeah so um, Bogota is a city high up in the Andes it's like 9,000 feet I was sleepy the whole time I was there um, and it's a very dense and compact city in some ways uh, very windy streets and it is full of cars and what I noticed when I went there is that the scale of the cars is different than here like we are freaking SUV nation right we've got these enormous cars and that's part of what makes streets feel so hostile when you're a bicyclist or pedestrian is you're like how is the operator of this tank gonna you know we're not in the same space right now anyway the cars there were a lot smaller but it also seemed like there were more of them and Um, I noticed that, you know, as you're walking around the city, um, people, there there was not the whole, like, yield to pedestrians thing um, that I'm accustomed to living in the United States. And so so I'd been hearing about this event, uh, the Ciclovia, for a while, and so it was really exciting to see it in its local context. So basically what the Ciclovia does, like Ciclovia here in L.A., is closes down um, some different streets around the city for some hours on a Sunday so that people can um, walk and bike and exercise or do whatever in those streets that they wouldn't be able to do uh, if cars were traveling on them. And in Bogota, it's, uh, you know, since this event has been growing since the 70s, it's got permanent signage up around the city. It happens every week. Um, People, drivers don't seem angry about it because they just know you can't go that way on a Sunday because it's part of the the Ciclovia route. Um, And what I didn't see as much of at the Ciclovia, you know, it just, it it didn't have like a festive atmosphere, kind of like I was expecting, because coming from the U.S., you know, having a, a like intentionally car-free space in 2008 would have been a party, you know, it would have been like, woo, we are human scale. But in Bogota, it was just this normal thing. It was like, yeah, I'm going to walk my dog. I'm going to, you know, take a stroll. It's just people didn't seem that excited about it. And I also didn't see that many people riding bikes, um, which I noticed because it had been portrayed as a, as a really bike-heavy event. Um, so came back to L.A. Um, in the fall of 2008 and um, helped to form a committee of people working to have a similar event here in L.A. And um, for me, one of the really important elements was um, exactly this problem you were talking about earlier of people traveling around the world and seeing places where, you know, transportation's different, but really looking for solutions for planning and design, um, you know, in, in Northern Europe. Um, to bring this model up from Bogota and to have it be something that wasn't about infrastructure, but was more about like creating a happening or, um, you know, changing the social environment was really important to me. It was like this was a decolonizing move to have um, an event coming up from Latin America. And I actually got to meet uh, one of the creators of the event when I was in Bogota, this uh, really interesting guy named Jaime Ortiz Marino. And Jaime made that point as well, that like, this was, you know, he was happy to be talking to these Americans about the event so that we could take it back up because, you know, it's time for that part of the world to have more of an influence on the North. Um, so I was all jazzed up about that. And it took two years of organizing to make the first Ciclavia happen um, in October 2010. But the event has been really popular since then. Uh, clearly, you know, it's a lot of pent up demand for biking and walking in L.A., Um, But something that is very different about the L.A. event versus the Bogota event is how many people are on bikes in L.A. In L.A., it has really been understood as a bicycling event. 
And um, I haven't been involved with the Ciclavia organization since early 2011. So my, you know, I don't have insider knowledge of their strategy and stuff like that. Um, but I have noted since I moved back to L.A. in 2015 that um, Ciclavia doesn't, it's very fun, mm-hmm. um, but I don't necessarily know that it gets used as a consciousness raising tool in the way that I had hoped it would. Um, So there is this trend that got going, um, you know, like in the era since uh, we got Ciclavia started uh, called tactical urbanism, which is this idea that, um, you know, you you put on some kind of street uh, intervention and and put out f- street furniture, you know, disrupt the space somehow, and it's going to have like good effects um, for the community. And I've had some trouble with that concept because I can see how it looks similar to what I had in mind with Ciclavia. So uh, even though the the concept of tactical urbanism looks pretty similar to what I had in mind with Ciclavia, I've really tried to understand over the years like what it is that squicks me the wrong way about tactical urbanism. And again, I think it has to do with this difference between are we just trying to fit bicycling into the dominant culture or are we using bicycling as an entry point to Um, joining other movements that want to change the dominant culture. And so um, I kind of I had envisioned that, you know, Ciclavia was going to like blow people's minds and they were going to be like, oh, my gosh, you know, the streets are so flexible. I don't need to be in my car like, whoa, check this out. You know, L.A. has been a city all along. Like, why do we talk about it as though it's, you know, the you know, you have to be in a car here like these distances are actually really short. And I think in some ways it's had that effect. Um, I think that people who attend the event might have those kinds of thought processes. But in terms of of the aggregate effect that Ciclavia has, um, it might be pretty similar, actually, to uh, what has been the effect of tactical urbanism or bike lanes or light rail, which is gentrification. Because the thing is, when we, you know... um, when we when we get people to see these spaces differently or see like, oh, I could live an urban life in L.A., um, unfortunately, that doesn't include the built in the question of how come I haven't lived in these spaces? How come my family chose to live over there and not right here? How come I can afford to pay, you know, two thousand dollars a month for a two bedroom apartment? How come this person can't? How come, you know, uh, the way that these buildings are being marketed is is really in alignment with like the kind of industry that I work in and not, you know, the industry that maybe the people who currently live in that neighborhood work in. Like it just doesn't, I don't think Ciclavia on its own can trigger those questions. Or I would say Ciclavia in its current incarnation doesn't do that so much as it, um, seems to make people feel good, which mm-hmm. is awesome. I mean, yeah. feeling good is very important. And, you know, I really hope that people um, get a lot of value out of the event. But I guess what I've learned over the years is that what I'm interested in is not so much getting people to revalue the urban landscape, because that's happening, mm-hmm. actually, uh, mostly in not so good and exploitative ways. But what I want people to pay more attention to is how are they in relationship with um people around them and and what is the legacy of segregation that has us divided and uh what how do we fit into the colonial um land grabs and takeover of this territory because you know this stuff is really not that far in the past like my family i i grew up thinking oh i'm you know so SoCal, my family's been here since the 1890s. I'm fourth generation. I'm like, you know, uh, I really, I deserve to have critical thoughts about this region because I've been here so long. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, dang, 1890s, uh, that's really not that long ago. And considering that only a few decades before that, this was actually the territory of a different country. And only a few decades before that, it was the territory of a different country. And only a few decades before that, 
it was not any European country's territory at all and yeah. was inhabited by a number of people like the the Tongva and the Ahashiman and all these other Chumash groups who had their own way of living here. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. Like for me, the bicycle for some reason is the entry point to doing all that digging and going, how do I relate to the people around me? And when people are mad at each other on the road, how much of it has to do with the pressures that they live with because of racism, because of lack of access to opportunity, because the only place they can afford to buy is in Temecula. So they're going to be on the freeway for two and a half hours. And that's why it's so important for them to be going faster than me right now. You know, like if we can use the bicycle to get into all that deeper stuff, I think we're going to um, see a lot more change than if we just focus on, well, if I had a bike lane here, that person wouldn't honk at me. I think it's an interesting point you make, especially with Ciclavia. I think it was back in 2016 when they first took uh, Ciclavia out to Boyle Heights, um, actually the neighborhood I'm working in right now doing like phone banking for rent control. And the Avarian Psychos and Defend Boyle Heights came out. We're like, hey, this is great, but this is also a gentrification tour. Like you're also going to be taking people who have an interest in investing in the places where we live and looking to displace us. Um, it's a necessary conversation, and obviously, like, no single one person's going to make this sea change. It's a cultural change. But what's your advice to people who want to get this conversation going, people who want to get their friends and families and neighbor neighbors thinking in different ways about cycling, about the urban environment, about the inequality that we all uh, kind of overlook on a daily basis? Like, how can we put your cultural anthropology into practice? Mm-hmm. Well, just a, a correction there. Actually, the very first Ciclovia started from Hollenbeck Park in Boyle Heights. True, so, true. so it does have roots in, um, you know, trying to be part of that, like bridging the divide between East L.A. and um, downtown L.A. However, I do. I mean, I think the critique that the OVAs and Defend Boyle Heights um, have brought to light are, you know, totally valid. I mean, we're all operating in these really effed up systems that make it so much easier for a cool event like Ciclavia to add value for the people who already have wealth versus build wealth for the people who don't have it. And that's where I think the really intentional work has to happen. Um, I think that in LA right now, the thing that I'm most excited about and that I'm, I'm actively working on, um, well, two areas that I that I'm that I want the groups that I'm part of to be to be trying to build closer relationships with. One has to do with um, worker-owned cooperatives and what are the models that are out there to actually, you know, build wealth in communities as opposed to, you know, unfortunately, so many of the like quote-unquote new mobility or shared-use mobility companies that are coming in now. Um, are the same corporate model. It's the same transportation industry, but like with scooters this time. Um, yeah, so and the, the jump bikes being run by Uber and Lyft, and it's the the same companies, the same tech startups over and over again. Right, and there and it's it's. I mean, you we need to have more of a focus on just the the bottom line in terms of well, who is making money off this? If it's some guy who doesn't live here, I think something's wrong with that equation. And it's been really actually. Um, I don't know. It's like I've I've been having a deja vu, like here we go again feeling as um, as some of these like, quote unquote, new mobility companies have been reaching out to a group I'm part of called People for Mobility Justice because they have this very shallow view of equity that, again, is more about what color people are in the marketing and what color people are cheerleading for their company than true equity, which has to do with who has an ownership stake and who doesn't. So I'm super excited that here in L.A., you know, we are a a hub for the development of worker-owned cooperatives. And that's work that, you know, I have heard about peripherally um, the program that I teach in, the Urban Sustainability Master's Program at Antioch, um, has played a role in helping to create um, the LA Co-op Lab, which has been around for a few years. So I'm really interested in figuring out how we can, like make a really strong network of transportation and mobility focused worker-owned co-ops that could be part of something like Ciclavia. So that way when Ciclavia comes to Boyle Heights it's not like outside coming in and you know just helping add value to the marketing of these people who are profiting but rather like they're here because there's this co-op and this co-op and this co-op located along the route and look this is going to bring more people to their doors. Um, So that's one way but, you know, another another thing that's been hard for me to talk about um, and that I'm still kind of developing my narrative around is the fact that um, because I left Ciclavia 
uh, early, you know, just after our first event, I'm largely invisible in terms of my role with the organization. And it kind of makes me sad that the folks running the show now haven't seen much value in highlighting that there was a Mexican-American woman who was part of the central framing and design of the event and that my hopes for it in terms of decolonizing and, um, you know, really bucking the the let's get ideas from Northern Europe trend have been lost. I think that it's very clear from the way that, um, you know, community groups have responded to Ciclovia and gentrification sometimes. Um, like they don't, that message isn't, isn't there in the event. And I am here in LA and when I moved back to LA in 2015, I kind of hoped that Ciclovia would be interested in, I don't know, like, drawing on me as a resource somehow and and that hasn't been the case so i do think you know there's something there in terms of well why would people see things differently if the way that the event is promoted and its history and and narrative are told erases the participation of certain groups yeah I think that that brings up a lot of issues that we have with uh, bike advocacy and the bike activists in the city. It, it seems very siloed. It's very technocratic at this point. Um, we have, you know, there are co-ops across the city, but they tend to be isolated. They haven't built a strong network. Like Bikerwave is out on the west side. Mm-hmm. They don't talk to Bike Kitchen. They don't work together on events. It's it's kind of like these weird balkanized areas of bike culture that you have. Um, and it's something that I've, for the last decade of, of biking around, have always been like, hey, I want to solve that. Um, but as we close to the end, uh, your book's coming out soon. Uh, where can people pick it up? Uh, also, do you have any other events that you want to rep before we close out? Yeah. So uh, so my book is currently available from the publisher, Microcosm Publishing, uh, which is easy to find online. And if you order directly from the publisher, then you're sidestepping all of the middlemen, such as uh, the big A word. <laughs> but, uh, but the book will be available from the big A word and uh, many other booksellers as of October 4th. Um, I haven't lined up too many events here in L.A. yet. It's been kind of a slow burn. Um, getting started with the book, but on I'll be speaking at uh, Bike Bike, which is happening here in LA um, this week, <laughs> September hey, hey, 26th yeah. through uh, 30th. So I'm really excited about that. And actually, I'm supposed to be reflecting on like the history and current state of the LA bike movement. So yeah, yeah I'll be thinking about this this issue of, of balkanized things. But um, I'm also going to be speaking down at a bookstore in Santa Ana on October 4th called Libromobile, mm. um, which is a really cool community-owned um, book space. And um, people can learn more about uh, my upcoming appearances at urbanadonia.com. Perfect. Thank you very, very much for joining us. And uh, again, I highly encourage you to go pick up the book Bike Race. And uh, after that, hop on your bike, do some riding, and explore Los Angeles. 